0: always a challenge to figure out just how I'm going to start the talk. You know, there's always many things in the talk that I want to point to, but I don't want to give it all here in the first, <laughs> this, this, like, this, like. <laughs> so I have here in front of me about six different ways I've started this talk in the past, <laughs> so I'm going to try something different and just start without an introduction. So we've been offering these teachings for nearly a week now, and we've talked a lot about awareness and the development of awareness, and how to do it, the techniques and the understanding that helps. And we've made allusions to uh, the teachings of the Buddha That's that we're offering. Actually it wasn't invented in California. In the 60s. <laughs> In fact, what we're offering is something that the Buddha um, taught, realized and taught uh, 2,600 years ago. And of course it's been adapted by other cultures as the teachings of the Buddha uh, transmigrated from India to Tibet to China, Korea, Vietnam, Burma, Sri Lanka, as it has traveled, transitioned to other cultures, it meets the culture, the prevailing beliefs, assumptions, spiritual practices, and it looks pretty different. So when you see a Tibetan lama and you see a Japanese Zen master and you see a Thai ajahn and a Burmese sayadaw they don't wear the same stuff. They don't speak the same language. They are quite different and you could think what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common is the foundation of the whole teachings of the Buddha. I call it the essential Dharma. So I want to speak about the essential Dharma teachings of the Buddha, which the Buddha came to realize after his lifetimes and years of practice and his awakening to the truth. Uh, He first articulated his realization of liberation and uh, talked to five ascetics that he had practiced with. And what he shared with them was a teaching on the Four Noble Truths that he had realized. So, in some sense, all that we're doing here (coughs) really comes from this understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And that's something that all of the... uh, Buddhist traditions in all the countries that it's gone to, they all rest on the Four Noble Truths, even though they have different practices and appearances and rituals and all that. They all subscribe to or believe in or derive their teachings from the Four Noble Truths. That's the way I've never introduced this talk, but so far so good? Okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm hot. So, please excuse me for a moment while I adjust my... The so we might ask what are we doing here that has to do with anything the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Well, let me articulate them for you and describe them a little bit so that you can begin to put what we're doing here and what your experiences are here in the context of what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha realized, what the goal or our aspiration might be in undertaking this practice. Imagine that you'd never heard about these teachings or never practiced them. And you went online or into Powell's bookstore in Portland and looking for some spiritual guidance. Where would you stop? And there's just racks and racks of old books, new books, relevant books, irrelevant books. And if you didn't have a guide through that to know where you were going or what you were looking for, you could wander around for years and never quite land on this practice and these teachings. So, the first noble truth that the Buddha realized is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means the truth, and Dukkha has its own meaning, which I'm going to share with you. But the First Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha. When I first did my first retreat in '75, the talk on the Four Noble Truths Articulated the first noble truth as life is suffering. Well, life su- it, life is suffering, is not a good come-on. <laughs> you know, that's not the goal that any of us are looking for. <laughs> so when I heard that, I said, "Life is suffering. What are you talking about? I'm just 25, and I've got my whole life ahead of me, and things look good, and I'm strong, and all that. Suffering? I don't feel like I'm suffering. I mean, I went to the first retreat. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never heard of uh, the Buddhist teachings and didn't know anybody that medica- meditated. I didn't know anybody.
1: <laughs> anybody.
0: <laughs> I, know lots of, I know lots of people that were meditating. Anyway, so, so I got there and, you know, I heard this first noble truth and blah blah blah. And or I heard that the First Noble Truth is suffering. And I didn't think I was suffering. You know, if I was suffering, I would, I would consider myself a failure. But I am mean, sitting up back and leaning against the piano. And I was sitting with, you know, cross-legged that I'd never sat in before. And I was listening to talks and trying to pay attention to my mind and body squirming with the pain in the body and wandering, watching the restless mind that's all over the place while I'm detoxing mentally and physically from overindulgence and all those things. But I wasn't suffering. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it just seemed like it was too strong a word. It was too, like, suffering. I don't get it. But when I went to Burma ten years later, Uh, one of Sairudh Pandita's translators used the term the oppressive nature of an experience as dukkha. And then I could get that, like, oh, the oppressive nature of too hot, too cold, hungry, whatever, mosquitoes, it's just like, okay, oppressive, I get that. And that began to uh, open the door for me to begin to understand what Dukkha is. So I want to try to share a little bit. The first noble truth is the Dukkha. a What does Dukkha mean? What is the Dukkha that this truth is about? Well, Dukkha initially means pain. Obvious pain, pain of physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. And, you know, it's something that we've all experienced, a lot of physical pain, right? Emotional pain, yes. Uh, Feeling lonely, alienated, frustrated, disappointment, let alone all the other emotional dramas that we uh, put up with. And physical pain, as as little as having a hangnail, or bumping your arm, or having a disease, or all the other physical discomfort, pain, that we inevitably have all come in contact with, right? We've all experienced physical pain. Mental pain? Emotional pain? Yeah. Okay. What's hard to get about Dukkha is thinking that, well, this is just my, this is my suffering, my pain, my loneliness, my feeling alienated, whatever. And we miss the fact that the Buddha said, this is universal. All beings experience this. So there's this obvious mental, physical pain. If we just kind of see it as my particular physical pain, emotional pain, we miss the fact that it's... everybody gets it, so to speak. There's a second meaning of the word And it refers to the fact that everything changes. So we're living our life and we have managed somehow to patch together a satisfactory, relatively satisfactory lifestyle where, you know, we have uh, the physical mental, emotional, financial necessities for navigating our life. So here we are. We're all have, we all have the discretionary time to be here. We have some level of education that we can understand what's going on. Uh, We have financial resources to be here. And so we have a lot of support and a good life, really. I mean, all of us are pretty healthy. I mean, healthy enough to be here for a while. And that's good. That's not pain. That's not suffering. But all of that can change quickly like I discovered, or like it was discovered for me, that you know all the goodness and health and ease and future that was present in my life is also present in your life. And it only takes... And then you have your ticket, your exit ticket. And it's like, wow, what happened to all that security and happiness and a sense of stability and... Ah, I finally got it together. And it can all go just like that. That means, or that points to the fact that we live with insecurity all the time. Now, the physical, pleasant, mental, pleasant, financial, pleasant that we enjoy now it's not painful, it's not, you know, suffering. But because it is not secure, we can't guarantee it. And all of those things don't guarantee that we're going to be happy, at ease, contented, any time in the future. So we see that even though right now we have pleasant conditions in our life, we know that they're subject to change quickly. And again, because of our security now, the apparent security now, we overlook the Buddhist teaching that all beings. Or all conditions are subject to this kind of change. So we have pain, physical, mental, obvious pain. It's called dukkha dukkha. It's so obvious. And this, this changeable conditions. It's called viparinama dukkha. It's not, you know, pleasant is not painful, but it is unstable. It doesn't last. There's another understanding of dukkha that's a little more, de- a little more challenging to understand. Pain is obvious. Insecurity is, yeah, you know, living with the instability of conditions in our life. That's pretty obvious. But there's another experience, meaning for dukkha which refers to it's called Sankara Dukkha and there are two two views of Sankara dukkha. And the first one is we're born. Our parents doing the best they can, or other primary caregivers doing the best they can, they bathe us, they coo us, they wipe our butt. They feed us. They try to educate us. They try to, you know, kind of help you be at ease. Because if you're not at ease, they're not at ease. <laughs> so, so parents have to train their kids to grow up. And so, as soon as the parents kind of get a little, they get exhausted. Then they enlist their uh, peers and relatives and uh, other siblings to kind of help carry the load. And this is going on, and we have to get educated. And at a certain point, parents say, you know what, you're on your own. That's about when you're Ten, twelve, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, now you got to take care of yourself. You're going to have to take care of washing, eating, bathing, uh, getting along with other people. It's it's up to you." And having been trained by our parents and others, then we engage the, the life of, that we're all engaged in, taking care of ourselves. So, what is it that we're actually doing? Well, in order to feed yourself, you have to get food. The way you get food is have money. The way you get money is have a job. The way you get a job that will feed you is to go to school. And the more school you go, the better food you can eat. (laughs) And so you get your money, you get your your money, and after work, after working eight or ten hours, whatever it is, then you get in your car or rapid transit, whatever it is, and you head home and you got to stop off at the grocery store to get dinner. So you go in the grocery store with everybody else just getting out of work. And you get your little cart, you run around the, the aisles, picking out what you want. Blah, 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 blah. You, get a, you get your cart up to the, to the checkout counter, and there's ten, ten people in front of you. So you're waiting. You finally get to the check, checkout, uh, get in the car, or get on, fill up your bags, and you go home. When you get home, you take your bags, put them on the counter, and unpack them. You put all the frozen stuff over here. You put all the back stuff over there. You put all the, you know, other stuff in the refrigerator. And some goes under the counter. Okay, Whew. you kind of get that. Kind of get that all put together. And you get a get a drink and sit down in the living room Whew. for 15 minutes. And then you got to get up and prepare dinner. So you get up, you open up. the refrigerator, the freezer, get out the pots and pans, and some people cook. I don't cook, but I've seen them cook. (laughs) Try (laughs) now. My (laughs) cook. And more than that, but anyway. (laughs) So anyway, in the midst of, you know, getting all this stuff together, and you wrestle it all up, and that hopefully it doesn't get burned. And finally, after a <laughs> half hour, 45 minutes at least, you can finally take, put it on the table and eat. That takes about 10 minutes. <laughs> 50 minutes, 15 minutes. And then you got to get up to the table, pick up all the dishes and things, put them in the dryer, put away all the other food. ta. <sighs> And you've got to do that every day. Right? You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to bathe every day. You've got to get dressed every day. You've got to go to work every day. You've got to talk to all kinds of people that you'd rather not to every day. And you just have to take care of your life. For a decade, or two, or three, or four, or five, six, seven decades. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends rummage around in your closet, pick out the best looking clothes, and they take it to somebody who dresses you all up in it, puts on your makeup, and you go say goodbye to them. (laughs) And the box goes in a hole in the ground. That's it. Some would say, that was a bad investment. (laughs) I mean, you devoted your whole life to this and just goes... um, It's a good thing we can laugh about it because we recognize it's true. From that perspective, this is what's happening. Okay, so there's a second meaning well, let's just say, all of that is really oppressive. It's just like, you, and you have to do it. Nobody can do it for you. Nobody's going to do it for you. You can get people to do it together with, but still, okay. So there's another um, meaning to the word or um, Dukkha. Second, the first one is that kind of we're born, we die. The second meaning or the area of it is we have these six senses seeing, smelling, teaching, touching, thinking and thinking and these sense doors are activated all the time all the time your ears are hearing all the time whether you're asleep or not you can't stop the ears from hearing same with seeing you know, you're seeing even if your eyes are closed you still see Things rolling through your mind. And feeling sensations in the body, even if you take a lot of drugs, you still <laughs> feel, feel the body. right? And thoughts. Can you stop your th- mind from thinking? Can I? And so we are Im- bombarded by constant stimulation of all our sense doors all the time. Isn't that exhausting?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, really. I mean, if you just step back and say, "Oh, I'm going to be doing this for the next seven decades." That's what I've done. I put in seven, seven decades of that kind of stuff. It's like, okay. So we can see that dukkha, the truth of dukkha, the Buddha, the Buddha didn't invent dukkha. He just realized, "Oh, this, this is what's going on." pain, insecurity, oppression. This is, this is the nature of this kind of life. The Buddha also pointed out that no one escapes the experience of dukkha. Whether you're we- wealthy or poor, whether you're educated or not, Whatever your gender is, whatever age you're is, whether you're a royalty or a pauper, everyone experiences this dukkha. All kinds. Now, I have a lot of appreciation for the courage of dhamma, my dhamma teachers, who were willing to share this knowledge with me and let me deal with it. Mm -hmm. Because in my family growing up, you know, my father was an alcoholic and a prescription drug addict, and there was no emotions ever expressed or acknowledged in the whole household, and that was normal. That was normal for, for me growing up. And so... Do you think that my mother and father talked about dukkha? <laughs> it's like it's all around. It, we're living it. And you're not talking about it. Wow. Okay. But with, you know, Upandita just pointing pointing it out, it's like this is this is the way it is. I'm so grateful to both the Western teachers and the Asian teachers that just pointed out, had the courage to help me come to be, uh, to see, to understand, and to realize and to let go. Because this is the source of a lot of suffering in our life. It's important to begin to open to the truth of Dukkha Because if you don't, if you're not able to acknowledge and accept the fact that this is the way it is, you won't do anything about it. You'll just accept it and, you know, kind of minimize it, deny it, avoid it, kind of explain it, blame somebody, blame someone else for it. But you won't deal with it yourself. So, do you experience dukkha? Mm -hmm. Any dukkha in your life? Okay. So, a question for you. So you have this dukkha. How come? Why do you have this dukkha? Why are we here with this kind of suffering? To use a familiar term. Well, the Buddha also understood or realized the cause of dukkha is craving, attachment, wanting, uh, desiring. The Buddha said, that's the cause of suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but I have long had the assumption or the belief that if I could just get what I want, imagine if I could get everything I want then I'd be happy Buddha said no clearly if you want something and you can't get it or have it that's really unsatisfactory that's, that's not good right? we're suffering on the other hand if you do get what you want Things, knowledge, people, experiences of one sort or another, how long does it last? Well, if you have something, if you get something, want something, get something that is alive, plants, people, pets, you know what can happen. If, they don't, if you're not nurturing them, they, they leave you, they die. If you get something that's made of metal, it'll rust. If you get something of any value at all, you have to insure it. And if it's really valuable, the government's going to take their share. And if it's new, just wait till somebody scratches your new car. You know, it's like the satisfaction that we get from getting is very temporary. You know, soon it becomes an obligation to take care of it. So when we when we see this... Uh, the the actual experience of getting what you want while it's momentarily satisfying it doesn't last and so the Buddha said hey even though we crave for pleasant experiences we like the body to be pleasant instead of painful we like sounds that are pleasant instead of annoying we like sights that are pleasant instead of uh, disgusting right? we want pleasant experiences and that's something that we, we pursue. We, we spend our life looking for pleasure. Some of us have reali- realized uh, some of the first noble truth, the second noble truth, and we figured out now that, hey, meditation is the answer. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get clear and calm and I'm not going to be bothered by this do anymore. So, so, you know, we uh, go on a retreat like this. You know, we didn't leave attachment and desire and craving at home. Because I'm sure that somewhere this week you've been wanting a good sitting.
1: <coughs>
0: right? Did anybody not want to have a good sitting? <coughs> right. Well, Joanne has the, a, a Dharma teaching for you. There's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day.
1: <laughs>
0: Why? Because have a good sitting, you have a little bit of tranquility and calm and peacefulness. You know, and for a part of the sitting, and then wow, the bell rings. Okay, I guess I'll get up and you go do a walk. And then, boy, I can hardly wait to get back and get back into that nice space. And you get back. It's not like that. (laughs) You keep looking for that place that you experienced the last sitting, and here it is agony in the body and noise. Everything's bothering you. (laughs) you I'm sure you've noticed. So, we crave for pleasant experiences. The Buddha said, we also crave continued existence. Now, that sounds pretty esoteric, pretty far reaching, or something. But what does it mean to crave continued existence? Did you have a planning mind today? Mm -hmm. Did you know some planning mind? Yeah. What is that? Planning mind is imagining the future better than it is now. Right? And we're, we, mentally we are kind of strategizing and scheming how we can get that pleasant, better future. So we're laying down the tracks in our mind to pursue it, to get it. Right? And what are we actually doing? We're planning our future experiences. This life, next life, whatever, we're planning it. We're planting the seeds of more of what we're already doing. And while we're living out the uh, plans and aspirations you have for a better future like we are now living it out we're scheming and strategizing how to keep it going to have more of this this is what calls samsara you know looking for happiness in all the wrong places you know where while you're living a good life you're still planning for a better life and when you get there and living that You're going to be planning for more of that. Where does it stop? How does it stop? Is it possible to stop? So we're craving continued existence. The Buddha said you also crave for what's called the end of existence. Well, let's not get too esoteric about that. But did you have painful sensations in the body? Today, yeah, do you have some mental torment today? Yeah, wouldn't you just like to get rid of it? Huh? That's wanting to get rid of this experience of this life. Put that aside, and we want that. So the Buddha was, you know, while it might sound very esoteric, you know, craving existence and craving the end of existence or something, we experience it every day a lot. So we're looking for a better future. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. (laughs) And what we fear or imagine we imagine will make us unhappy but it doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Also, studies of lottery winners and those who experience a catastrophic illness or calamity, after a year, after the event, they're back at the same place of happiness as before winning the lottery or having the accident and getting a calamity, catastrophic condition. What we have to conclude from these um, studies or realizations is that we really don't know what will make us happy. And our, uh, our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. And happiness is not dependent on external conditions so much as it is dependent on the internal relationship and attitude towards them. Craving, second noble truth. Now, if the Buddha said, hey, here's the first noble truth, uh, truth of dukkha. You're going to experience pain, insecurity, and oppression, and it's all caused by craving. Good luck. <laughs> Luckily, he had room for another realization, another truth came to his mind. So the first noble truth is to be investigated. Now, think about this. What we're doing here is investigating the First Noble Truth. Aren't you discovering pain in the body that you never knew you had?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, just called discovering the truth, uncovering the truth. And investigating our experience to see for ourselves. oh yeah, this is, this is what's going on. It's hard, because we're, we're, we're running off to fantasies of other things than being here. Imagining this healthy, happy, happy, whatever and it's just not that way. The first noble truth is to be invested is investigated. The second noble truth of craving, craving, is to be abandoned. So there is this craving. We're practicing to notice, and you'll notice, that you find yourself wanting, yearning, hoping for things as insignificant as the belt ring, let alone something different, lunch, and everything else that we crave. as the buddha continued to sit under the bodhi tree as his realizations were awakening he realized the third noble truth that is dukkha can come to an end come to an end we can realize the end of all that dukkha that i talked shared with you the pain the insecurity the oppression it can all come to an end And when the Buddha pointed to or talked about the end of suffering, we also, we often hear the third noble truth as, oh, there's this place called enlightenment or nirvana or some esoteric thing that you hear a word but you have no idea what it means. So what does sitting here with our pain and knees and Scrambled in mind. What does that got to do with end of suffering? Doesn't it seem like we're discovering and making more suffering? (laughs) I mean, mean, before (coughs) you came here, you weren't suffering the King way as suffering you now, right? So. The third noble truth is there's an end of suffering. So what does it have to do with what we're doing here? Well, instead of talking about this far-reaching, unknowable enlightenment, nibbana, end of suffering, let's just look at our experience here. One way that we see, right here, the end of dukkha, is when we discover that our mind is wandering is, is taught, uh, ca- caught up in some fantasy or some memory or some plan, and you've been lost in it for five minutes, and then you kind of come to it and realize it, and you can just go, ah, oh, I don't need to do that. And in a moment, you let go of the habit of mind, and for a moment, there's a moment of no craving, and there's just, oh, right? And, and we do that a lot. I mean, in practice, we're just... You know you notice that you're hanging on to something, and you let go. It's like, it's that easy. Well, when I took, went to my first retreat, it was a few years after getting out of uh, university. You know, when I was in university, I was in engineering, and back in the days when we didn't have handheld computers and calculators and stuff like that, we used a slide rule and did a lot of mental calculating, longhand uh, mathematics, if you will. And I spent a lot of time undertaking uh, advanced mathematical courses. So I was very familiar with what you can do with numbers. And it was just rampant. So when I went to uh, my first retreat when my mind would wander off, it would wander off into mathematical ruminating.
1: It's
0: like, hey, there's, there's six walls in this building, they're about ten feet high. I wonder how many cubic feet are here. And even now, I mean, when I, when I saw that I said, if I wasn't paying attention to my mind, I wouldn't even recognize if that's what I'm doing with my discretionary time. (laughs) Right? So the same thing is, is going on with everything that we've cultivated as a habit of the mind. We know how to do it. The mind will keep doing it, whether we want it to or not. So, paying attention with mindful awareness, we can begin to see what the mind is doing and let it go. It's a habit. And we can cultivate the mindfulness that recognizes this habit more frequently, more quickly, and before it really takes us off into the la-la land. A second way that we... Oh. Yeah. Never mind. (laughs) A second way that we see, see the end of dukkha occurs when we're practicing... And we get assaulted by the filaments that I was talking about, the hindrances and the kalesas and all of the mental suffering that we, we churn around. And when we see that, we have now some mental tools, mindfulness, endurance, patience, letting go. We have some tools for putting aside that momentary indulgence in one of these dysfunctional strategies in our life. And so when we, when we see that, we're kind of engaged in anger or desire or pity or pride or whatever it is. And we see it, we let it go and we have a moment of, uh, well, let's just say, a dukkha-free zone. You're not suffering anymore. You're not tired, you're not angry, you're not frustrated. You kind of put them aside briefly. So there's uh, letting go of habits of mind that disturb our continuity and disturb our sense of stability. And when we put them aside, we just drop into, oh, here we are like this. And in time, that continuity of no defilement or no torment becomes more accessible, more continuous, and we can really enjoy what's called seclusion of mind, where the mind is not assaulted by these dysfunctional strategies that we've developed. And that seclusion of mind is a kind of dukkha-free zone. If we continue with uh, practice, we gradually see that we are developing more mindfulness, and along with it comes some level of joy, investigation, um, qualities of mind that are uplifting. We also get to enjoy or see the development of some tranquilizing factors of mind. Tranquility, equanimity, uh, calmness or samadhi, what's called samadhi. And when these come into balance, the three energizing and the three tranquilizing factors of mind, the mind is really pretty stable, pretty clean, pretty clear, pretty calm, with clear understanding. And this, too, is a kind of temporary, but maybe for a longer period of time, a a time of not immediate suffering, another kind of dukkha free zone. In time, that balance of mind, energizing and tranquilizing, leads to the mind being very equanimous, where pain, pleasure, it doesn't, pull us off of our center, where no matter what's going on, we have a balanced way of appreciating it. Equanimity is like maybe the best ally you can have in your everyday life because we have the restraint through understanding and the development of mind not to be caught in this impulsive reactivity that governs a lot of our lives. Right? So when this equanimity is developed, you know, we see how quickly things arise and pass away. Because the mind isn't reacting, the mind is really cool. I don't mean temperature cool, but it's just not inflamed. And the mind becomes very light, adaptable, agile. It can accommodate anything. That shows up in your it's a door of your mind. It doesn't get flipped out or uh, agitated, and the mind is not fragile. It really has some enduring quality because of its the steadiness of its mind and the non-reactivity to what's appearing. So this is this is a good. This is actually a very good quality of mental pra- of mental training or mindfulness. But there's another further way of minimizing suffering from practice is when the mind is developed and is very equanimous, then we start to see beneath the surface of momentary experiences and we begin to understand their nature. And the nature that we begin to understand is the Vipassana insights. Meaning, we begin to see that everything that's arising, to be known, arises, lasts for a moment, and disappears, stops. Nothing that you've experienced during this retreat is still happening. It's over. It it arose and passed away, just like that. When, you're, when your insight is developed and you see everything that way and you're seeing that everything that you experience is just a momentary what is it that's going to grab your mind that you're going to crave hang on to and get entangled in because you know, the mind knows it's just fleeting and so, the insight into impermanence, uh, insight into impermanence, helps you release gripping anything that appears in, that appears in your life. So this is the end of a kind of craving, the misbelief that things are permanent, even though we try to create stability and permanence. In our lives, it's only relative; it's not permanent for very long. The second insight is the insight into dukkha, and this is not from hearing me give a talk, dukkha, or reading about dukkha, but it's experiencing it when the when the insight into dukkha is developed. Everything we experience everything we're aware of is seen through the lens of dukkha. It's either painful, or if it's pleasant, it leaves some anticipation of insecurity, or it's just oppressive. And when you see this is the quality of every experience you have, that it's painful, it doesn't lead to stability or security... And it's oppressive. Why would you grab on to and crave any of those experiences? Because you know, if you grab on and hold on and yang, yearn for and get, it has a quality or the characteristic of dukkha. So the mind doesn't reach out to grab anything when it's when the, uh, when the uh, vipassana insight into anicca is fleeting, seeing fleeting experience. You know you can't hang on to anything, so you don't even, the mind doesn't reach for it. Same when you understand, when the mind understands the dual characteristic, it also doesn't reach for anything because it's painful. The third characteristic of all uh, experience, another uh, insight, is the insight in what's called the Anatta characteristic that's hard to describe. Let's just say that things are out of control. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning, so much of our life we don't control. The body, we can't control the body. I mean, it gets sick. It does all kinds of things that we have to put up with, right? And you can't make it. No matter how much vitamins, no matter how much yoga, how no much how much aerobic exercise, no matter, the body is still going to go its own way. Right? Same with the mind. Can you control the mind? No, just tell the mind to stop thinking. Cannot. And so we see that this thing that we call me is really pretty much out of our control. It just happens. And we have to endure with it. Right? But when you see this condition in all of our experience, why are you hanging on to it? Why would you reach for it? It's so ephemeral. It's so evanescent. It's so... Not in your grip, so you won't reach it. The mind doesn't even reach for it, let alone grab it. So these three insights train the mind to just let go of everything that arises. Now that doesn't mean that you disappear. It doesn't mean that you don't have any experience. It just means that you don't hang on to experience. So these are these are deep and subtle insight, knowledges. Now, that's not the end of the Dukkha-free zones. There's one further letting go to happen. So we're letting go of our attachments, we're letting go of our habits, we're letting go of the present moments, experiences, we're letting go of our misunderstandings of permanence, satisfactoriness and being in control. We're letting go of that When the mind is in that space, letting go, it is possible that the mind will let go of everything. And this we say falling into the unconditioned. The unconditioned is the end of suffering. Huh, okay. It has no size, no shape, no color, no smell, no thoughts, it is the end of all that, Dukkha, the end. It's a realization, it's an understanding that can be realized, but it can't be described, because it has it's ineffable. It has no, nothing that you can point to and say, it's this size, this shape, this color, nothing. But it is a reality that can be understood. So this is the direction that our practice is going, is toward this end of suffering. It doesn't mean that you die, it doesn't mean that you can't live as a human doing what you're doing, but you have an understanding that and you're not attached to hanging on to any of it. This is the beginning of freedom. Because with the initial access to the unconditioned, then the mind is no longer believing in There's a me inside of this that's experiencing all this. That belief, that misbelief is uprooted from the mind. And you realize that everything that's happening here is happening due to causes and conditions out of our control. There's no thing here. There's no one here. There's no no Steve inside of this activity in the body. Steve is, is just that. The activity and the Uh, the the experiences of this mind-body. But there's no thing independent of just the momentary arising of the body and the mind. That's it. So when you come to this recognition of the unconditioned nature of not suffering, it is, as the Buddha said, it's really subtle. It's very... uh, not incomprehensible. But he said of suffering, or the end of suffering, he says, it is deep, it is hard to see, it is hard to understand, it is peaceful, it is sublime, it is beyond reasoning. But it is intelligible by the wise. It can be perceived, but it can't be described. <coughs> We use words like peace, contentment, sublime to point to this truth, but it's not really an experience. It is ineffable, but peace is its characteristic. First noble truth is the truth of dukkha. Second noble truth is the dukkha is caused by craving. Third noble truth is craving can come to an end and realize the end of suffering or end of dukkha. And how do we do that? The fourth noble truth is the eightfold noble path that leads to or brings us to this understanding. And the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, is really three training of the mind. The first is living by the precepts, which we're doing here if you make a commitment to non-harm through speaking, acting, sexual energy, use of uh, intoxicants, things like that, can you imagine It just... I mean, you know, when you read the news, the news is a catalog of people not keeping sila.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just a catalog of the killing, stealing... sexual misconduct use of intoxicants and not telling the truth it's just rampant I mean it's just like if you can practice or train your own mind not to act out in that way you'll have a lot of less uh, destructive relationships with others and that's the end of a lot of suffering but even though we're acting in a, a very skillful, uh, ethical way, sometimes we, you know, we might feel like acting out, you know. And the mind can be obsessed with what you want to say, what you do, and sila helps you from going down that track. But the mind is still just obsessed and this is a kind of uh, torment that is in the mind but not being displayed outside but still we need a different training the second training of the Eightfold Path is to develop mindfulness and with mindfulness we temporarily and increasingly uh, extend the time when we're not tortured by the torments. we can actually set them aside for periods of time And if you keep practicing mindfulness, you can be continuously mindful and keep the mind pure, not obsessed with these thoughts. But because we can't always be that mindful and aware, the Buddha offered a third training, uh, which is the training in insight. And with that, we begin to understand not just suppressing the obsessing mind but we begin to understand how and why the mind obsesses and this takes seeing into the conditions that give rise to all of your experiences all of, all of your experiences and all of your suffering so then you begin to really understand and you change your understanding you tra- you, you train to let go of the unskillful conditioning that you've been living with. And you replace it with the skillful understanding of the Dharma. And these three trainings are the path to the end of suffering. But it takes investigation, it takes letting go, it takes realizing uh, the unconditioned and and developing. It requires that development of the path through these trainings. This is what we're doing here. We're living with the precepts. Nobody's beating on each other or hitting on each other or taking other people's things. We've lived in harmony here for five or six days. Therefore, that's a great experience to have no, no big agitation with somebody else for five or six days. And also we're developing mindfulness where we're learning how to recognize the agitated mind and calming it down. Not immediately, but with training we can see that, yeah, you've all had experiences where you're less tormented than all the time. And that is, if you keep developing the practice in this way, you'll have extended periods of time without the mind obsessing. And also... We're not letting you just hang out in a kind of a tranquil bliss. We're wanting you to pay attention to how did this happen? What led to this pleasant state or this unpleasant state? And you begin to understand how things are arising, why things are arising in your mind. All because of wrong understanding. And so with insight practice, we begin to understand things from another perspective, not from our dysfunctional conditioning that we've gathered from society, culture, parents, teaching. But we begin to replace that with a skillful understanding of the Dharma. And that's what we're doing here. We're listening to the Dharma, we're practicing in a way, practicing the Dharma. We're exercising restraint through the the sila and we're beginning to tame the mind. You can't control the mind, but we can tame it. And that's what we're doing here. Now when you stop and think of what it took today to have a little bit of calm, a little bit of peace, a little bit of tranquility, a little bit of maybe insight, understanding, that's what it takes to unwind all the suffering in your mind. Keep doing that. So we keep practicing and in time the understanding, the tranquility, the commitment to non-harming just becomes stronger. And in time you're not entangled in this stuff. You still have life. You still have to relate to people. You still have to eat and somebody's got to do the dishes. But nevertheless you're not suffering with it because of the understanding that arises through practice. Why did the Buddha teach about the Four Noble Truths? He said, because it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals, fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to dispassion. So we're not caught up in passion, but it leads to dispassion and to disenchantment. So that we're no longer enchanted by the fascinating, glittering things we see through them. And it leads to cessation of suffering. It leads to peace. It leads to the direct knowledge of enlightenment and of the unconditioned Nibbana. So it's important to hear these teachings on the Four Noble Truths. It can arouse in your mind a clear aspiration which you might not have received yet. So when you see that oh it's not just having a good sitting it's not just the mindfulness that kind of tames your stressed mind but it's actually the practice that liberates the mind but if you don't hear these teachings you won't aim your practice in that direction so it's important to hear the teachings on the Four Noble Truths even though you might not be realizing yet and you might not even believe them But once you hear it, it's in there. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSed.com